Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Clark Suprenowitz, award-winning Bay Area composer, musician, and teacher. He is now CEO and artistic director of Future Fires. He'll be talking to us today about what that is. Welcome to the show, Clark. Thank you so much. I'm so happy you're on the show to tell us about Future Fires. First of all, can you explain what it is? Sure. It's hard to talk about what it is without talking about the origins. So I've noticed that art and technology is an emerging domain. You can trace its roots back to the 60s and even before that. But I think a lot of people recognize in recent years there are just extraordinary things happening with virtual reality, augmented reality, 3D projection mapping, robotics, wearables, even aerial light shows created with drones. And what all these things have in common is that they have become tools that artists are working with creatively. And my personal belief is that if you stick around for a couple of years and watch this whole phenomenon, I think we'll, we will recognize these times we're living in now as a time of incredible imagination and people mixing it up and and trying to figure out this whole thing. But emerging out of it, I, I think I'm not the only one that sees this. There's this whole emerging new activity of artistic practice. Future Fires is, just to get to like that part, is um, a large-scale festival of art and technology that I've been putting together with a really great team over the last couple of years. And, uh, Who are these people on your team? Yeah, well, we've got an amazing advisory panel. That gets back to the kind of origin story. When I started working on this a few years ago, I spoke to Pam Winfrey, who has been a uh, curator at the Exploratorium since 1979. And she said, well, not only do I think this is a great idea, but I'll be on your advisory panel. And people kept saying that. Um, so we've got a really great group of people from the art side, from the business side, uh, large event management. I've got a partner in the business, Scott Lipsitz, who um, started a great media company that you can find online uh, called Driver Digital. And so he understands the whole capture and distribution of media part, which is very important to create a live event these days, because that's as much an online phenomenon as it is something that you experience physically when you show up. As to the team that I'm actually working with that are putting on the event, John Mitchell was a producer right here at the Greek Theater in your backyard for five years and then moved over and worked with the Super Bowl 50 this last year. And his next posting right after that was to come and work with me and a few other people he brought along from uh, Super Bowl 50, which includes the marketing director there and the person that's doing our sponsorship management. So there are those folks. And we've got a wonderful guy, Patrick Haynes, who's got a production company of his own, which gets back to the online media part of this. And David Brossard as our CFO, kind of taking care of the money stuff. So it's a really great kind of lean, mean team. And we're starting to work with the Midway and Pier 70 partners in San Francisco. Those are our well, new partners. Let's talk about the location yeah. and frequency. Mm-hmm. How often is this going to happen? Where is it going to happen? What is your vision for that? Yeah, I we've got some really great stuff brewing for early 2017 with both artists and dates from our venue partner. So Is your I've, venue definitely Pier 70? Uh, and the Midway. The Midway is actually a really wonderful 2,500-person venue with sort of five rooms that orbit around one large one. And they're just getting their permits together and have started doing events there. So those are our partners. And we plan to do events at the Midway until we move over to Pier 70. So will it be completely indoors? 
actually both of them in nice weather provide the opportunity to do inside and outside. And is it once a year? How do you envision this? We're, we're looking at doing several events a year with kind of a bump in the middle. The larger one will be in the summer months. And probably the way things look now will be staying at the Midway for the first year and moving over to Pier 70 when we are drawing large enough crowds. So you're going to have a launch party first, Mm -hmm, right? right? And then start rolling out these programs. How much will it cost to go to one of these events? Well, we're trying to keep things affordable. I think running underneath the surface of all of this is the awareness a lot of us have that the arts community has really been under fire here in the Bay Area for quite a while now with rising rents. And uh, we don't want to put on an event with some astronomical ticket price just to pay for it. So we are carefully having conversations with sponsors, making people share our vision and helping to pay for it that way, which is a model that should be familiar to anybody that's been to Coachella, for instance, or mm-hmm. Maker Fair. So that's part of what's driving revenue for it. And of course, didn't you have an t- Indiegogo t- campaign, or is that still mm-hmm. ongoing? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's closed now, and we've we put some money in the bank from that. And I guess the other thing I, I would say is we're having some really great conversations with people now, and it's taken a while to get here and uh, just sort of spread the word about what we're doing, but talking to some of the people in the Bay Area that can afford to reach into their pockets and kind so of So you're done with any kind of side. crowdfunding. Yeah, that's, okay. that's right. And but if there are people listening to this and they've got uh, a lot of money in their checking account and they think this sounds exciting, please reach out to futurefires.com. Right. So you're looking for, you're still looking for private yeah, we, investment. We, we raised investment uh, last year and I think we did really well and got to a nice place, and that and it's sort of an ongoing first raise of capital that is paying for all of this. And, and it's worth contrasting a bit with the nonprofit model, which I'm very familiar with, and I've worked with a lot of great organizations in the Bay Area and done some grant writing of my own. It just seemed like as we tried to figure out why there is not right now a large event of art and technology in the Bay Area, that part of the answer is that people have been working usually with the nonprofit model coming from the museum and gallery sort of side of things. God bless SFMOMA and the Gagosian Gallery and all of those people, but it just seemed to us to do a really large festive event and bring in people from around the world with high production values and really do it properly, that it was probably better to model it after some of these larger festivals. So like a for-profit model? Yeah, that's right. You've composed several operas. You you come from a kind of a classical and jazz background, Mm -hmm. and... Can you talk about those changes you saw coming some time ago and how that informed your work in in doing this event that combines art and technology? You're right. I've done a lot of work collaboratively in the Bay Area. And for whatever crazy reason, as a composer, I tend to gravitate to these large-scale projects that take some years to realize. And you wind up doing grant writing and sitting in a whole lot of production meetings and doing a lot of collaboration. I guess I would say I like the collaboration part of it that's always attracted me, maybe because it partly gets me out of my room. <laughs> a lot of artists spend time alone. And uh, I, I enjoy the social part of it. I like uh, hearing people's ideas and helping you know solve problems together. So to get to this project, after doing the operas that you talk about and being involved in these often multidisciplinary projects for years, I was going back and forth between Europe and the U.S. about three and a half, four years ago. And more and more people were sending me these really interesting projects in my inbox. You know, things would show up. And I'm sure you've seen things on the Creators Project or somebody sent you a link from time to time. And what was interesting is every time I looked at these projects and I saw some amazing piece involving projection mapping on the side of a building, for example, or 
I mentioned earlier, an aerial drone-based light show. Or, <laughs> you know, Daito Manabi's work with No Such Thing is an example of an amazing melding of the musical world and somebody who's an amazing visual designer. And I was seeing these projects, and I was noticing every time I would look to see where they were, they were in Tokyo, they were in Paris, they were in Berlin, they were in Italy, they were in London, mm-hmm. and they were not in the Bay Area. Now, we have an incredible technological community here, of course, and a lot of innovation going on. And there are people doing remarkable work in art and tech here, but that doesn't mean they have a large-scale platform for that. Uh, We've got some wonderful colleagues in the Gray Area Foundation and Kodame and projects that occasionally do occur at Swiss Next or Dorkbot San Francisco. Uh, One of our advisors is the person that started Dorkbot San Francisco, wonderful meetup group. These are places where you can see some remarkable art and tech projects, and they're great. They're in an intimate setting, and we're just looking to expand that. And a lot of people talk about um, Burning Man's influence on these art and tech installations as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have an interesting connection to a number of the people that do large-scale sculptures through Jeff Whitmore at, at the Midway our venue partner that I mentioned, and a couple of other people that are kind of orbiting around that are in that community. Yeah, that's been one of the great things about this, actually, is finding all the overlap and all the excitement that is going on as we discuss this with different people. It really is much more common than not when we get into a room and talk to people about this, that they're just supportive in every way they can be. Well, tell me about a few of the artists that you are working with for the Future Fires project. Yeah, sure. I'll mention a couple. Uh, There's a wonderful group called Fuse, and I would recommend people uh, check them out online. You could probably find them most easily through the piece that we're uh, looking to bring here next year called Leos, L-J-O-S. I think they're just outside Modena in Italy, and I actually got to visit them when I was first starting this project. Wonderful bunch of guys. As sometimes happens with this sort of work, they're working in architects' offices together because they're kind of brilliance and creativity and coding talent is appreciated there. And it, you know, helps them make a living while they're doing this stuff on the side. And they have brought that and a whole collection of pieces to festivals all around Europe. And this will be their first time coming to the Bay Area. The piece they're bringing, the one that I mentioned called Laos, is a generative piece. It involves real-time graphics that are responding to a dancer, an aerialist, that is part of that piece. And I'm very interested in that work where you actually have a human element. It's not just a question of pushing a button and making something run, but there's something really warm and organic and unpredictable and wonderful and complicated about what happens when you get human beings, whether that's musical or whether that's dance or having the audience in some way trigger or influence what's going on. That's really interesting and one of the one that of the That is fascinating really interesting. Aspects. Who are you working with on the technology piece of that? Uh, just to speak of someone here in the Bay Area or a couple of people that have become uh, good friends of ours and are doing wonderful creative work, Future Cities Lab in Dogpatch, South San Francisco. Again, people that have a background in architecture, but people may have seen their work at Yerba Buena Center. They've had two different pieces installed there over the last year and a half. Their work is interactive, and they tend to gravitate toward these large-scale exhibit sculptural works, and they're starting to do very well and getting uh, some recognition. They have a commission in Washington, D.C. for a new piece they're working. So that would be an example. And another, possibly not as well known, but I'm sure he will be, there's a fellow here on a Fulbright, I think, at SFAI, and his name is Kan Berber. I'm going to actually spell that in case anybody wants to look up his work. It's B-U-Y-U-K-B-E-R-B-E-R. 
Bayek Berber, and he's been uh, all over the place. I don't know when that guy sleeps since he got here. He's had work presented down in L.A. at, at a festival there recently. He's working with immersive environments and VR and all sorts of light-based art. We've got a whole family of people that we're in touch with. Probably the best thing to do is visit our website. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today I'm interviewing Clark Suprenowitz, the CEO and Artistic Director of Future Fires. What is the mission of Future Fires? Are you trying to reach a new demographic? Well, there are two parts to that. There are the people we're, we're finding a connection to and people that are interested in what we're doing. And there's our mission, which is related. I would say the audience we're finding is really broad. It's a primarily youth-related event that we're putting on. If you talk to our marketing director, she'll tell you that you need to get really specific about who you're reaching out to and the kind of messaging you do. It's not my area of expertise, but she knows what she's talking about. So you so are it's, focusing it's, on a demographic. Yeah, sure. You kind of yeah. have to. And and also it just makes sense because of the niche that we see or the vacuum in the Bay Area. We're looking for primarily people in their 20s and 30s. And uh, that's that's the event that we see missing. A lot of the people you you know, you referenced Burning Man earlier, people that are going to Coachella, people that are going to Burning Man, people that might make the trip down to Austin, to South by Southwest, a lot of uh, young people that are very creative, and they might be working in the tech industry, they might have a design background, they might be art students, they might uh, just be incredibly rabid fans of music and large events. It's it's that younger audience that, that primarily this is geared toward. But there is also, I am told, <laughs> again, by people that know marketing, there's a secondary demographic, and we're certainly welcoming people in that are 40s, 50s, 60s, and have been around the Bay Area long enough to see all the evolution that's happened. And here. who have the deep pockets. Yeah, sure. That doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> hurt. I guess I would say one other thing on this topic, too, which is important, which is uh, I mentioned earlier a lot of people being priced out of the Bay Area that are in the arts. I think it's really a wonderful thing about this project that it's the only place I know of where technology and the arts are really shaking hands and getting along. You've got artists that are embracing code, software, and hardware, the increasingly intuitive interfaces that make it possible to do creative work if you're coming from the creative side. And people that have uh, companies and are working with this frontier technology that is more and more emerging, they're looking for opportunities to show off what this stuff can do. They're creative people, too. They may not be artists by day. That may not be their, their primary skill set, but they're happy to partner with people that can show off what can be done with what they're innovating. An example of that would be the great incubator program that's been going out at Autodesk now for a couple of years. And one of the artists that's kind of in our family, Anouk Viprecht, has been there several times working on projects at their incubator program. What's an example of how you're moving music forward in this tech plus art scenario? Yeah, well, I don't want, I don't want to come off as someone that's masterminding something that's already going on. I think we're in more in the position of, of curating and trying to provide a stage for a lot of wonderful stuff. So okay. I can name some people that I admire and that we hope to see on our, our stages. Amon Tobin, who actually lives right here in Marin. Uh, Flying Lotus, who's from London. I mentioned No Such Thing. These are artists that are not only creating some great music, but if you look at what they've been doing visually, you see um, that they've been paying a lot of attention to that, and they're looking to be innovative and experimental and have a lot of fun 
too, with what their audience is looking at as well as hearing. I guess the band Tool would be another example. And that's an interesting one to bring up because the artist from Turkey that I mentioned, Ken Bayekberber, who's right now at SFAI, he created uh, all the visuals for their last touring show. And if you look at Tool online, I believe the first video that bobs up shows you the visuals that our artist in residence created for their last touring show. And that was a really delightful discovery for me because you're right, I do come from a music background. But at the time that I started working on this, I was thinking of music as another category that we needed to represent, just as we would represent VR or fashion and tech. And I realized that that was all wrong, actually. If you look at what's going on in the music world, people are more and more embracing the visual design that's possible with these kinds of tools. And And why is that? Part of it is that we're looking at a generation that experiences things as much online as they do live. And if you're a musical performer, even if you're someone that strums an acoustic guitar, which is a great thing too, uh, you need to have some visual signifier out there, something that lets people know who you are and Uh, It's only natural, I think, that people would be exploring more and more how to tell a story visually and start developing some kind of language there and using that as a creative medium in its own right. So I think that's part of it. And I also think that these tools have arisen, projection art, for example, or VR, and people are naturally eager to see what they could do with that if they're coming from the musical side. You know, I, I think it's great, too, to go to a concert and watch a cellist who's playing sublime music and be able to focus on that one element alone. I hope that that never goes away. But it's just undeniable that there's a whole new generation of musical artists that are embracing the possibility of really creating a visual feast. I was just reading the transcript of T-Bone Burnett's keynote address at the Americana Fest this September, and and he talks about the, the challenge that we face with technology and says... It has no aesthetics or ethics. And he kind of insinuates that Internet technology has become a prison. So it was really kind of a contrast when I saw what you were doing. And And yet I understand there's so many people in the arts, I think, that feel under siege. And there's a whole phenomenon in our culture of the arts in general being marginalized. One of the members of our team has made the point, and I think it's quite a positive and constructive one, that what we can do here, and I, I hope we do, as we build this, is provide a a different and very positive role model for younger people who are trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And being an artist, as it's usually defined, just doesn't look like a very good option at the moment. But if you see people that are doing things with code and involved in these remarkable collaborations and, and making a decent paycheck, which is something we hope to enable, you know, through this, this sort of work, um, that's pretty great. That's pretty interesting. If you're 11, 12, 13 years old and you were thinking, well, I I don't know that I really want to go into banking. I don't know that I really want to be a lawyer. Then there's the issue of arts in the schools today. There's so little of it, whereas when I was growing up, we had choices of instruments, we had choir, we had plenty of arts for free. To go that same path today takes a lot of money and time Mm -hmm. that um, most people don't have. That's right. So when you talk about young people with coding, it's something they can do, Mm -hmm. and they can do it inexpensively. I I really believe, too, as I said at at the beginning of our time here, that this phenomenon is really emerging, too. It's very easy to look at what's happening now in 2016 and and go, well, that's pretty cool. You know, I, I, I think I I see some interesting work going on there. But if you just project forward, considering how fast things have moved, how much more powerful processing is now, how much more intuitive the interfaces are that are available to artists, 
and this kind of body of work and uh, and a practice that has started to emerge, I just think there's huge potential there for anybody young today looking for something creative to do. And again, that's not ever going to take away the beauty of what T-Bone Burnett does or Ry Cooter or any number of wonderful instrumentalists. Where do you see future fires, like in five years? Do you, do you think it's going to evolve into something else? Well, I can tell you that our venue partner, the Midway, is really working hard to make their new venue in South San Francisco a center for community and for the arts and for innovation. And so I have to kind of put my answer together with what they have in mind. And that's a really nice thing to do. Partnership is a great thing if it's the right kind of partnership. They would like us to stick around for years and work with them and build up the audience at the at Midway at, at Pier 70. They also run public works for people who've seen shows there. And uh, Jeff has uh, been working recently with the people that do shows at the Mint. So just because those guys have been in event production for a long time in San Francisco, there's a lot of opportunity there to do shows both large uh, small and medium. So we want to grow this, um, not because we intend to take over the world, but just because we naturally think uh, interest is there and will emerge more and more as we create a chance for people to come out to a large event. What will you be doing for artists? I hope we do a lot for artists. I hope we provide an opportunity for them to do what they do uh, more than they have now. I hope we provide a, a chance for people coming from overseas that until now have not had a chance to uh, do what they do at a major media arts festival in the Bay Area because there hasn't been one. Um, but above and beyond that, I would say something <laughs> that's kind of interesting to me, and, and I, I, uh, it really will not cost as much to do this, and yet it, it turns out it would be slightly revolutionary. If you look at some of the online portals where you can go and watch art and tech, Let's just say that there are places you can go and watch these projects online, and I happen to know from the artists that they haven't received a dime for the videos that have been produced and put up there, and we would like to change that. I mean, even if you can institute kind of a Pandora model or even do a bit better than that and give a few pennies in the dollar to artists that are partnering with us and giving content, I can tell you as an artist myself, it's great to have a little passive income showing up in your, in your <laughs> sure mailbox is, yeah. every every month. I want to talk about your background, sure. because I don't know if everybody knows about you, but not only have you written operas, but you're still teaching jazz at the Berkeley Jazz Workshop. Mm -hmm. That's correct. You founded the Music Theater Project at Z Space. I mean, you have, you have an amazing background in music. So that makes it particularly interesting to me that you would get involved in something like this, because you really know what you're talking about in terms of 20th century music. And to move forward in the 21st century with that kind of background is really powerful. Well, uh, thanks. That That's very flattering. I, I am doing this with some other people, and I think I've mentioned some of them already, and I, it's important to stress I'm, I would be a little crazy to try to do this all on my own, and I'm not sure anybody has the skill set to do large event production of something that pulls together these different worlds without a whole lot of help. So I've got some great people around me. But as far as on a personal level, in the jazz education that you mentioned, yeah, the Berkeley Jazz Workshops go on and on, and they're easy to find online. I'm also teaching a class at the jazz school that's coming up. For those who are interested in that part of what I'm doing, it's now called the California Jazz Academy, and they've got great programming happening over there with a lot of remarkable musicians coming through. And also, uh, this is a fun month for me. The Oakland Symphony is playing a piece of mine as part of their opening what concert. What piece are they playing? They're playing a piece called Red States, Blue States that I did as part of the Under Construction series for the Berkeley Symphony about eight years ago. And 
because of the election season coming up, I think Michael Morgan thought that would be an interesting piece to put mm-hmm. on the program. So it, so I'm, I've got sort of a curtain raiser, and then it's Elgar and Mahler on that program. <laughs> that would be up. great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you go to uh, Oakland Symphony, you can see their opening concerts yeah. coming up. So that's pretty exciting. on the East Coast, and yep. you came here in 1982. Mm-hmm. What brought you to California in the Bay Area? I moved out here. I was just telling somebody this the other day. I moved here with a drummer and my bass and his 10-speed bike and his drum set in my Volkswagen Beetle. I really don't know how that's possible, but it's true. We did that. And I landed here because I was looking for a place to play music professionally. And I got pretty lucky. Um, there was a bassist here in the Bay Area that I got to know who moved back to Belgium about five months after I got here. And he basically gave me all his work, and I bought him a box of cigars. (laughs) So I had a really nice introduction to what was then an extremely vibrant jazz scene in the Bay Area. And I made a living between that and teaching for the next decade. But toward the end of the 1980s, I started moving more and more toward composing, and that launched me into a lot of the collaboration that I was talking about earlier, which suits me really well. I like working with creative minds and groups of people. Yes. Is it unusual to find jazz composers and jazz performers in the opera world and the more classical world? Is that unusual? Less so, certainly, than it was a few decades ago. But when you started, was mm-hmm. it unusual for someone to come out of more of a jazz Actually, I world? think at the time that I was doing that, there were some other composers. Stephen Stokey comes to mind. Paul Drescher here in the Bay Area is an electric guitarist originally. Mm-hmm. People that were not coming from a background of classical piano or strictly conservatory Is it training. unique to hear? So when you say here, it might be a little more coming out of America than Europe, sure. And it only makes sense because if you grew up listening to hip-hop or listening to rock or, or world music and that's what you love, and then you get interested in theater and you get interested in the vocal tradition, you're going to bring those things with you and you're going to be looking for ways to work with the music you love and the things that are relevant to I think it's really you. great what you're doing with Future Fires because it's allowing people to not get pigeonholed. You're a cellist or you're a dancer or you're a software programmer. It's just an opening. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, there are so many remarkable people. You asked me to mention a few of the artists, and there are many more of them that are profiled on our website. We're really building what I see of as a, as a family of people with common interests that are doing just really remarkable, inspired work. And each one of them individually, week by week, month by month, is is off working wherever they are, you know, here in the Bay Area or in London or at in France, and and they're thinking about the possibilities that are emerging from this domain of work and pushing the envelope all the time. There's just new great stuff popping up. And and this kind of innovation, will this be unlike anything anywhere in the world when it starts up? No. Again, I I want to avoid sounding like we're um, 
doing something that's never been done before. I think what's unique about this is that the barrier has not seen a large stage for this kind of work. And uh, it's an opportunity time. <laughs> with high production values. Yeah, I, th- I think it is time. But there are, are great festivals. The Stripe Festival in Eindhoven, for instance, which happens in Holland every year, is one that comes to mind, or the Berlin Biennale. There are plenty of Ars Electronica. Somebody on our advisory panel has started Future Lab in 1979 at Ars Electronica. And I'm, I've mentioned a few times now these drone-based aerial light shows. That's Horst Hortner that actually pioneered that with Intel. And that's an amazing thing. You can see samples of that work online. This is, is this something that's going to be coming up in Future Fires next year? Not this next year, because it, it's it's not only financially ambitious, but you run into problems in the United States with the FAA. I've talked to Horst about it a lot. We think we might be able to eventually do it at Pier 70, because there's such a huge parking area there. And also, it's under the authority of the port rather than the city of San Francisco, and things are just a little bit looser there. So uh, we hope to do that. Let's say I go to this Pier 70 event next year. Will I be sitting, walking, participating? What is the... Both at the Midway and later when we move to Pier 70, we're going to have... It actually depends on the event. I'll give an example. We're, we are in discussion with the Goethe Institute and a Berlin-based artist named Robert Henke, who has also done work at Gray Area Foundation. He does just remarkable laser light shows. It kind of elevates that whole world uh, that some people know from discos and so on to a whole other realm. He's just an amazing artist. And that will be a seated program. It will be really like a concert. People will come in and um, experience what he's doing for about 55 minutes. So it will be one thing at a time. Sorry. So we're, we're doing some smaller events, and Robert Henke would be an example. We might present a few other artists that night, but that would be at the Midway, a few thousand people relatively contained over a night or two. When we move to Pier 70, which is an enormous space, for those who haven't seen it, it's just remarkable. That will be largely a standing room and provide the opportunity to present potentially dozens of artists. That's great. Yeah. If you could just tell us again what your website is for Future Fires. Sure, it's futurefires.com. Well, that's easy. Mm -hmm. And again, it's the first of its kind, a large-scale interactive art and technology festival that's coming up in 2017. We're so happy to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for taking time. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Tune in again next Friday at noon.